Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is the word of our Lord. This morning we are going to talk about... uh, Discontent with the divine. Years ago, when I worked at Wofford College, I was an academic advisor, and my job there was to work with students who were struggling academically. They would come to meet with me, and we would talk about their academic performance. Uh, And the only students I encountered were those who were obviously uh, struggling, perhaps failing. Uh, Most of them were in school. So this young man, he was a freshman, came to meet with me. We sat down to talk, and when we did, he uh, had all of the reasons uh, to be successful as a student. Uh, He, uh, his parents, when he was 13 years old, decided to put him in a good school. So they put him in Christ's school over in Arden, and uh, if he were to be enrolled in Christ's school today, that school costs $45,000 a year. And so he uh, was enrolled in a very good school. He had gone through middle school and high school as a student at Christ School. Now he was at Wofford, and if he were to be at Wofford today, I don't know the cost of either uh, or of uh, Christ School back then, knew what Wofford cost, but today Wofford cost 
uh, between fifty and $51,000 a year to attend. And so he uh, had all the pedigree, all the stuff together to make him uh, academically successful, yet he's failing. If you put all of this together, uh, his parents, if this were to happen today, would spend $250,000 on his middle school and high school education and another 200000 on his college education. A half million dollars spent on a kid who uh, failed in school. So we talked about time management, we talked about self-management, we talked about uh, study habits, how do you study in college, how does that work? We covered all of those things, and I met with him several times as I did each student whom I advised, and when we finished our time of, of normal time of meeting, we weren't making much progress, and finally he spilled the beans. He said, um, you know, when I was 13, my parents sent me away. I lived at Christ School all those years. I've not been home since I was 13 except for summers here and there. Uh, His parents had provided for him financially. He drove a new Jeep Wrangler, uh, which was quite nice and the envy of many other students. He had everything on the outside you could imagine, uh, but he... Uh, so longed as he shared with me that day for his dad, just to be his dad. His father had used his power to get him into uh, these schools. He was most likely uh, not of the academic caliber to be where he was, but his dad had used his power to get him there and certainly had used his money Uh, But what this kid wanted more than anything was his dad's presence. He wanted mom and dad. He wanted to be a family. And that emotional undercurrent was throwing him. It was throwing him off. Well, we find the children of Israel in a similar circumstance, except it isn't God's fault. We find them in a difficult place. Uh, The people have blown it while Moses is up on the mountain uh, getting the Ten Commandments. They get Moses' brother, Aaron, their spiritual leader, and they take their their gold and uh, uh, off and they throw it into a fire and they make a golden calf. And they raise that golden calf up and begin to worship this golden calf. And as they begin to worship the golden calf, Exodus 32 tells that fateful story. As they begin to worship the golden calf, they look at Aaron uh, on day two and they say, uh, build an altar in front of this calf. And and was it not these gods who uh, somehow this calf represents who got us out? of Israel and across the Red Sea. And so they worship the golden calf and they give the calf credit for their crossing of the Red Sea. 
Scripture says they ate and drank and they rose up to play. It is a phrase that means they partied, basically. They had a a crazy frenzy in front of the golden calf. The word play implies sexual uh, license. All of this, the, the people that God had brought across that Red Sea, this is what they did. And God tells Moses about it on the mountain. And God is furious with Israel, so furious that he insists to Moses that they must die. He says, I have nothing left for them. Moses, I will make a great nation of you. I'll annihilate all of them. I'll make a great nation of you, Moses. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. God sends a plague. God got angry. He got angry the way you provide for your children and they forget what you've done. God got angry. He got angry the way you work 50 hours a week and your kids seem not to notice the blessing of your effort. God got angry. And he spoke to Moses and said, they're a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone, God says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God was furious. Moses pleaded with God and God listened to Moses. He sent the plague and in his anger he did two very interesting things. Uh, Number one, in his anger, God promised them his power. I find that interesting and unusual uh, that in his anger, God promised them his power. In 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Say unto your offspring, I will give it. How do we know, other than looking at 32 and hearing God speak to Moses, how do we know he's angry with him? Here's how. He calls them the people. Well, why does that matter? It matters because in uh, chapter 3, when God calls Moses to leave the comfort of his uh, career there uh, with Jethro, his father-in-law, the sheep herding business, uh, here's what he says. Then the Lord said, Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It's the same message in 33, but the personal pronoun is changed. In 33, it's the, and here, uh, or the definite article, but uh, it, it goes from a personal pronoun to a definite article. It's my people in three, it's the people in 33. What a sad day that is when God 
refers to his own people with such objectivity and distance. God was angry. And so in his anger, he promises them his power. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you and I'll drive out uh, the, the Canaanites. And the list goes on. God was not coming. Uh, he was not promising his presence. He assured them of his power. Why? Here's why. He swore. He says it. I swore it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He always keeps his promises, period. When God says it, he does it. And he told Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, here is what I'm going to do. And when he says he's going to do it, he does it. But he says, I will not go up among you. I'll give you my power, but I won't give you my presence. I have a question for you this morning, and it is one for me. If God were to promise me his power, would I be okay with that? If God said, I'll take care of this for you, I'll check all the boxes, I'll complete all the tasks, we'll get the job done, would I go, all right, I'm good. I'm okay with that. In his anger, God promised them his power. Secondly, in his anger, God promised them his provision. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey is a euphemism for everything you've ever wanted or needed. That's what the phrase, when you see that in the uh, Old Testament, I remember as a kid when I used to hear this, I I thought that that would either be uh, really sticky or clabbered. it was neither appealing nor uh, a refreshing to me to consider a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, but it means in that land is all you've ever wanted and all you've ever needed. I'll give you uh, this land that has all you've ever wanted and all you've ever needed. I will provide for you. Shouldn't this satisfy them? God's going to give his power. He's sending an angel. And how remarkable is that going to be when the angel steps up and takes care of business? They cross the Jordan and the angel does his work. And Jericho comes uh, falling down that large, massive city. Isn't that going to be spectacular? The news of the day will cover uh, that event as the angel does his work. And then they'll eat and gorge themselves on all that God has promised. Verse 4. Is striking. Don't miss it. Verse 3, he calls them a stiff-necked people, stubborn. Verse 4, when the people heard this 
What kind of word? Disastrous. God promises his power, and that's disastrous? God promises his provision, and that is disastrous? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments a sign of mourning is to take off the mourning, the the ornaments. The Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. When you mourn, you don't care what you look like. Things that once mattered don't matter anymore. You become become concerned with the inward matters of the heart, not the outward appearance. They mourned. Amidst such promises of power and provision, they mourned. Mourning like this always precedes repentance. It always does. The New Testament says there's a godly sorrow that brings forth fruit that results in repentance. No one glibly or happily repents. Uh, You don't joyfully look at your sin and go, whoopee, I don't plan to do that again. No, when sin catches up with you, it has a way of crippling you. It has a way of bringing you down. In God's anger, he promised them his power. In God's anger, he promised them his provision. In their repentance, they begged God for his presence. Wow. In their repentance, they begged God for his presence. Moses now, verse 12, said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Moses says, God, you chose me. You picked me to do what I'm doing. And you say to me, bring this people up from where we are. They're in the Sinai Peninsula down. They're in the, in the very corner. They've got to go up. Should be a two-week journey. And, 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 and camp there on the uh, northeast border of the Dead Sea. And then cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. He said, but who are you sending with me? Here's what we need to understand. Moses found favor in God's sight, not because of any characteristic Moses had. God didn't uh, sit up in heaven and go, well, you know, um, I've got this task. I've got a whole group of people, and they're over here, and they're enslaved, and I've got to find the right guy to get them out. Let me look at some personal resumes of people who can get the job done. Oh, there's Moses. 
Moses, who's uh, fled to the backside of the desert because he's a bit impetuous. And one day when he was out and saw one of his fellow Hebrews being beaten uh, by a slave driver, he lost his cool and murdered him. Oh, he fits the bill. Let's choose uh, an ex or a con who's on the run, a fugitive. Uh, Moses, who in his still impetuous nature, when God told him to speak to the rock instead of uh, speaking, he struck the rock and didn't eventually even make it into the promised land. God chose Moses. Not because Moses had a resume that impressed God. We can't do that, folks. There's no way that you and I can impress God. Why? Are you ready? He knows everything about us. Uh Uh-oh. He knows what you're thinking right now. Like for some of you, it's Bojangles. And he knows that. You look so spiritual as you sit there. And he knows lunch is on the brain. I mean, he knows that. He knows everything. How can you impress anyone who knows everything about you? You can't do that. You you know, when you start dating, you impress. You dress to impress. Your car is clean. You wear deodorant. Um, You may even put on smell goods that add to the effect of deodorant. All of this, and you uh, go pick her up, and you open the door for her. Fifteen years later, you're in the driveway honking the horn because she's not ready. She comes out, and she's swinging on the door as you leave, trying to get in. And if you had hair, you'd comb it. There's nothing impressive anymore. Why? She knows you. If you're going to impress her then, it's got to be good, right? She knows you now. You see, God did not choose Moses because of his impressive resume. Uh, Moses wasn't even a good organizer. He had all these people, and he was, you know, pulling his proverbial hair out. And Jethro finally steps in and says, Moses, here's the plan. Why don't you do it this way? And Moses is like, right? Moses found favor in God's sight because God chose him period. Could I say something to you this morning and to me? If you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if the blood of Christ has washed over you, you, my friend, have found favor in God's sight. Amen? Not because of one single thing you have done, but because of what Christ did on the cross. Through the outstretched arms of Jesus, you have found favor in God's sight. 
through the blood that flowed down his body and flows over your sin and covers you, you have found favor in his sight. Through the resurrection of Jesus three days later, you have found favor in God's sight. Your favor has never rested on your moral ability. Your favor has never rested on the money you've given to God's work. Your favor has never rested on your capacity to teach or preach or understand the deep things of God. Your favor rests in a crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Amen? That is where our favor is. But you can't skip through what Moses says. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. What? It appears to be a misstatement on Moses' part. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your side. What does he mean? If you want to continue to find favor in God's sight, You have to know his ways. You have to know his ways. Notice what Moses says. Back in Exodus 3, he found favor in God's sight. God chose him. Now in Exodus 33, he says, Now, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. You see, when Trent was born and we held him in the hospital room, he found favor in our sight. Why? Because he was our boy. It, it wasn't because he was cute. It really, it really wasn't. It, it uh, wasn't because he just, you know, smiled largely. Uh, the, you know, I I'm of the opinion that all babies look alike. And Wendy says, oh, doesn't it look like? I'm like, no, honey. All I see is like smudgy, pudgy face. I I don't see everything you see in these babies, but women do that. And, uh, but he found favor in our sight because he was, he was ours. And he always will. We, we love him. But the way he continues to find favor in our sight is to respect us, to do what we ask, to obey. That's the way he continues to find daily favor in our sight. Uh, Meaning that if you've been a parent, I'll just shoot straight. 
I've always loved both of my children. There are days I haven't liked some of them. (laughs) Amen, parents? Sorry to burst your bubble, kids, but that's how it rolls. God right now isn't liking Israel at all. And Moses said, I know you chose me, and in that I find favor in your sight. But I'd like to find favor in your sight day in and day out. How how do we do that? When he shows us his, his ways. What is God's answer? Verse 14, and God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says, okay, I I, I promised you my power and that wasn't enough for you. I promised you my provision and that wasn't enough for you. How about me? How about I promise you myself? Will that be enough? And I will give you rest. Do you know what you have to do before you can rest? Get tired. You can never rest unless you're tired first. The word rest in Scripture is not simply the cessation of activity. You just quit doing something. It's the accomplishment of a goal. And when the goal is finished, you rest. This weekend, we watched Hannah play three different volleyball games. One Friday night, Saturday uh, Saturday at 1, yesterday at 5. It was her senior week. A senior weekend, uh, she's... We'll be finished with volleyball in a couple of weeks. She has played for 10 years. And so it's a remarkable, bittersweet time to watch her finish playing. Yesterday morning, or yesterday's first game at 1 o'clock, we played a team that North Greenville has never beaten, and North Greenville has never had 21 wins in a season. And the first set, I thought, it's over. <laughs> We're toast. At the beginning of the second, I looked at Wendy and said, We're totally outmanned. And I don't know what happened. There was this other factor. You see, three girls from Hannah's team played with her at junior college, and a fourth girl played on their team, who's on Belmont Abbey's team. And so there's a little, you know, you want to prove something in there. Well, sure enough. They turned it on in set two, and we won two, three, and four. And for the first time in the history of the school, beat Belmont Abbey and got to 22 uh, to 21 wins, won again last night. And so we went with Hannah to eat, and we sat down just grabbing a lunch between the two games. And she looked at us, and she said, I am so tired. And then she said, but that felt so good. That's rest. 
Rest is when you uh, accomplish a goal, you make a goal. That's rest. And so uh, God says, my presence will go before you and I will give you rest. When you get to the land, you won't be struggling. You won't be working hard at it. You will find rest. You will be tired from the journey. And and so what does this say to us today about our walk with the Lord? It it says to us about our walk with the Lord, it's tiring. It's difficult. We will work hard. We will uh, fight against sinful impulses within ourselves. We will have to duke it out, but God will give us rest. Why? Why? Because he promises his presence. How does Moses answer this? Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Here's what scares me. Is it possible for us to do church with God's power void of his presence? Sure. God just dot the I's, cross the T's. We'll, we'll count noses and nickels and say it's been a good year. Is it possible for us to do church with God's provision that is void of his presence. Sure. Sure. Just get good organizational leaders. Organize it well. Lead high. And almost any organization can succeed. Yes, that's possible. Would we ever consider that a disastrous word so here's what we're going to do dave's going to come and play and as he does i'm going to ask you three questions i'll ask them one at a time and this is how we'll end our time together this morning i want you to introspectively, like looking in the heart, answer these questions for yourself. Here's number one. Are you ready? Are you content with God's power without his presence? Think on that for a moment.
Question number two. Are you content with God's provision without his presence? Moses said, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Here's question number three. What makes your family, your business, your medical practice, yourself as a student or a single person distinct? There is an old hymn that says, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee right where you're sitting. Dave, if you'll just play that, I think this key will work. Let's sing that together as a prayer to him and we'll be finished It goes like this. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. 